So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 66, and we're going to be considering verses 1 and 2. Let me turn there in my Bible, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, we look to you, all of us desperately need you and your help this morning. I need you to preach your word in a way that is effective in the lives of your people, and we all need you in order to understand and know how this particular passage applies to our hearts and to our lives. So, Father, we come to you based on the merit of Jesus, and we want to gather for the sake of your name, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us this morning. Help us to see things in your word that we would not see without your help. Help us to believe those things and help us to live according to them, and again, in ways that we would not do on our own, but only with your help. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, kids and adults, I have a question for you, and the question is this. What is the most important thing about you? What is the most important thing about you? It's a wee bit of a strange question, but I think an important one nonetheless. Some of you might start listing off your passions and your hobbies, and so some of you might be animal lovers. Um, Others of you might be an artist or a musician or something like that, and so you say, that's the most important thing about me. Others of you might... Uh, be athletes, you like sports, and so you say, well, I'm a baseball player, or I'm a soccer player, or I'm a rugby player. Some of you might name your origin or your background, and so for me, I am from Japan, but I'm a proud Canadian. We, we have Americans in the room. Uh, there are people also from Jamaica, the UK, Mexico, Ghana, the Republic of Ireland, the Netherlands, Germany, Philippines, Egypt, and others. Many of us would probably point to family and say, that's the most important thing about me. My family tree, my nuclear family, my extended family, that's what's most important about me. I want you to hear how one theologian answers this question, what is the most important thing about you? In the opening sentence of his classic work, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or evil as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So according to Tozer, the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me 
is what comes into our minds naturally and, and, and responsively when we hear the word God. When we think about God, what is it that comes into our minds? That is the most important thing. That is the deepest thing about us. So what I want to do in our time together this morning is to help us have high thoughts of God. Because if we don't do this every now and again, it becomes extremely easy for us to have low and therefore wrong thoughts about God. And so just as the piano needs a tuner, so our thoughts about God need regular tuning so that they sing to the melody of the scriptures. And that's what I want to help us to do this morning. If you're taking notes, this is the first movement in our passage. First movement is, who is God? Who is God? And under that, we have two subpoints. Simply, number one, subpoint number one, God has kingly authority. God has kingly authority. So if you look at the verse one, it says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So kids, this is not a trick question. What or who is this an image of? Who is it that sits on thrones? Kings or queens, right? Rulers and royalty sits on a throne. And what God is telling us in this passage is that he sits on the highest of thrones. He is the highest of kings. And note with me in this text, this planet in which we call our home, this planet called earth that every human being that has ever lived has carried out his or her existence. God says, that's the place where my feet sit. It's my ottoman. It's my footstool. In other words, God is great. He is royal. And he has all authority. This is the first thing that he says out of the gate in Isaiah 66, verse 1. So subpoint number one, God has kingly authority. Subpoint number two, God has self-sufficiency, or more accurately, God is self-sufficient. And let me just say that this text creates a little bit of a tension for us because we know that in other places in Scripture, God actually commissions the building of the temple. God is pro-temple, for example, um, in other places in the Old Testament. And yet, in this passage, it seems that he's a little bit irritated by the temple, or at least by the people's approach to the temple. And so how do we resolve this tension? I want you to look with me to verse 1, halfway down. It says, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now, I just want to spend a little bit of time explaining the tension and what's happening here. When King Solomon had first built the temple, he understood that the existence of an earthly temple to house God created theological awkwardness. From his vantage point, even though he was the king of Israel, he understood, or he at least asked the question, as a mere mortal, how can I adequately build a house, a temple, to in, that the God of the universe can inhabit. How can I, as a mere mortal, build a house that was adequate to house the God who created all things? So it was a bit of an impossibility from the get-go. God could never actually be contained in a building, even a grand edifice such as the Old Testament temple. But fast forward a few hundred years, and there are many in Israel who were practicing a God-in-a-box theology. They thought that they could confine God to this earthly temple that their ancestors had built and that somehow the worship of God could be reduced down to the sacrificial system that they were following. 
to the external rituals of sacrifices and offerings. They thought that that's what the worship of God consisted in, merely. I'm not sure how Christmas shopping works in your household. Um, I'm not really even sure how it works in my household. Um, but if you have kids, and particularly uh, you know, when they're um, younger, I would imagine that mom would give to the kids money and say, go and buy dad a gift. And we know where that money is coming from. We know that it's coming from dad's paycheck or from the shared bank account between mom and dad. But, but at the end of the day, dad is paying for dad's gift, right? That's how it works. Um, and we go through this process because we want our children to be involved in the gift-giving process. We want them to learn how to think about others and all the rest of it. Uh, and as parents, we're delighted when our kids uh, give us gifts, if it's given out of a heart of love. Um, Alyssa and the boys got me a, a Paw Patrol shirt for Father's Day, and I paid for it, but I was delighted that they got that for me and they were excited about it. But it would be quite a strange thing, wouldn't it be, if our 12-year-old son walked up to us with a list of all the gifts that they had gotten us over the years. The date, the holiday, the item description, and the receipt total for each gift. And then to try and use that in some way to barter with us or to try and get something out of us. We would say that that 12-year-old boy, this happens sometimes with 12-year-old boys, but they had missed the point. And somewhere along the way, Israel had missed the point as well. They had lost the plot, as the British would say. Their thoughts about God were off. Perhaps they thought that they could control and manipulate God by their offerings and their sacrifices. And their hearts towards God were cold. They were engaged in the external rituals of sacrifices and offerings, but their hearts were not loyal to God. They would dabble in the worship of the gods of the nations, and when God called to them, when he spoke to them, they had no time of day to hear his voice. And here's the key. They had thought wrongly about God, which led them to wrong practices in worship and in life. Wrong thinking about God is connected to wrong living and wrong worship. I want us to see that from this passage. And obviously, we're not engaged in temple worship, um, but this text does speak to us. First, I want you to see that when we approach God in worship or in life, it is not we that are doing God a favor but it is God condescending to our level so that we can relate to him. It is an act of grace on his part. And I want you to hear this. His position nor his welfare are bettered by our acts of obedience or worship because the cattle on a thousand hills are his. That includes yours, Terry. And the God who made heaven and earth is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God does not need us, but we desperately need him. Second, he is not ultimately pleased by our external acts of worship in the temple or in the church if it is not accompanied by a broken heart of devotion. God is concerned with our external acts of worship. There's a a rhyme and a reason why we do things the way that we do here. We sing and we preach and we practice the ordinances and, and we do those things because the Bible teaches those things. But... And so those things are important, the external acts are important, but God is even more concerned with the heart posture of the worshiper. If our external acts of religion, if our external acts of worship and life are not accompanied by a a broken heart of devotion to him, 
then God does not care much for it. And all of this leads me to say this. Christianity is not about you and me being great for God or before God. Christianity is about letting God be great, which requires the corollary that we are small. So here's the thing. If your Christianity, whatever version that you believe in, causes you to be at the center of all things, in worship, in life, in your devotional life, in, your, in, in, your, in, in whatever it is, in, in, in the various aspects of life, it causes you to be at center stage, and for God to be on the periphery, or, for, or even worse, for you to be at center stage, and for God to be the one who helps you to fulfill your will and for your kingdom to come, then your Christianity has gone astray and awry. Christianity and the religion of the Bible allows God to be big, which requires us to be small. You and I desperately need God and not the other way around. So in this first section, we see the greatness of God. And in the second part, I want us to see the beauty of God. And beauty not so much like a man gazing at his wife. Beauty not so much like a person watching the sunset but like an orphan child being adopted into a loving home. A criminal hearing the gospel in prison and going on to be a pastor years after his release. A beauty out of the ashes sort of beauty is what we see, I think, in the second part of verse 2. So if you're taking notes, point number one was, who is God? Point number two is, what shall be our response? Who is God? What shall be our response? And if you look with me to the second half of verse 2, that's where we're going to be. Yahweh says, but this is the one to whom I will look. And the word look here is not referring to, to mere sight. I mean, God's not saying, I see these people. He can see all things. He knows all things. What he's saying is that I will look towards this kind of a person, this kind of a man, this kind of a woman, with a particular favor, with a particular grace. So this is the one to whom I will look with gracious favor towards. And there are two characteristics of the person that will experience this divine grace. Characteristic number one, the person who is humble and contrite in spirit. We're going to take these in turn. So humble and contrite in spirit, we're going to take these in turn. The the word for humble refers to those who are materially poor. To those who are at the bottom and on the fringes of society. To those who have a deep need and an inability to help themselves. And so we can hear what Isaiah is saying, because he's speaking, I think, in the spiritual realm, although I think There are connections to the physical, but he's speaking in the spiritual realm. That's how it applies to us. It is those who see themselves as an abject poverty before God. To those who embrace their desperate need for God. To those who are beat down, weighed down. And to those who have nothing to offer to God. To those who are, in the words of Jesus, poor in spirit. It is to those people that Yahweh will show his special grace towards There's a second phrase that I like for us to consider because I think they're meant to be taken together. They're supposed to complement one another. So the one who is humble and the one who is contrite in spirit. So if humble refers to being impoverished before God, then contrite in spirit refers to being injured before God. We've talked about um, Christmas giving earlier. Let me talk about name giving. Okay, one of the principles of naming your children is that you should be able to pronounce their name Jonathan in the Bible clearly didn't get that memo because he named one of his sons Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. 
If you know your Old Testaments, then Mephibosheth is the, one, is the son who had crippled feet. He was crippled in feet. And you're like, what in the world does this have to do with our text? Well, um, the word crippled is the same word as contrite in our passage. And so the word refers to being crippled in spirit, or perhaps we would render it broken in spirit. The one who understands that his soul is sick and there's something deeply wrong with him on the inside, the one who understands that sin, the fall, and the curse has left great damage upon his soul. So when we take these words together, humble and broken in spirit, we understand that the only appropriate response that we can have before God who is sovereign, holy, and self-sufficient is one of lowliness, humility, desperation, and brokenness. Friends, do you see yourself in this way? That you are in abject poverty and have nothing to offer to God except your broken heart. That you are severely injured and that the brokenness runs deep within your soul and therefore you are in need of divine mercy and grace. This is so contrary to our nature and so contrary to our culture, but precisely what God desires and what God blesses. I'm not always enthusiastic about connections, um, either in flying or in preaching, Um, but I want to make a connection uh, to what is arguably the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Because I think there's an important connection between the lowly servant that we've been talking about and the suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And those two words, smitten and afflicted, are related to the words humble and contrite in our passage. And so then I think what we can infer then is that the path of the lowly servant, or the way of the lowly servant, is to follow in the wake and the footsteps of the suffering servant. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are followers of Jesus who is the suffering servant, and so if we are to be the servants of Yahweh as the lowly servants of Yahweh, then then our lives need to somehow resemble the ultimate servant of Yahweh, who is the, which is the suffering servant. There is a rhyme and a reason to the redemptive plan of God, and central to that plan was the crushing of his son on Calvary's cross for the transgressions and sins of the people. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus needs to be afflicted and humbled in the way that we are, because obviously he was sinless. What I'm saying is that he was smitten and afflicted for us. And it would be through that suffering that Jesus bore in his earthly life, in Gethsemane, and on the cross, that God would secure forgiveness and restoration for his people. And the way that you and I can be participants in that restoration and in that forgiveness is to take up this lowly posture before Almighty God. This lowly posture in which we acknowledge our finitude and our fallenness, our smallness and our sinfulness, our poverty and our wounds. And then and only then can we hear the assuring words that by his wounds we are healed. This is how it works. God is not merely after an awareness of our brokenness, though. He is also after an active devotion to his word, which is where we will end our time together this morning. Who is it that God will bless? He will bless the humble and contrite person, and he will bless the person who trembles at his word. Do you see that? 
at the very end of verse 2, the last line, trembles at my word. And how should we understand this phrase? The, 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 the word tremble really has the sense of being afraid or being in awe or reverence for a person or a thing. And you know, I think that here in the West, um, we have many privileges and many blessings, but this, is, this has escaped us, this concept of the fear of God and of his word. And so let me give to you uh, kind of two illustrations together, which I hope will help us to make advancement in our understanding of what it means to tremble at the word of God. Number one is that of a police officer. Uh, so I, I don't know about you, but whenever I see a police car, an officer causes me to, to tremble. Like even if I'm not doing anything wrong, um, my heart trembles. I'm a little bit nervous. And, and you, know, I'm, you know, if I'm driving, I make sure I'm not uh, speeding and I'm following all the laws and, and things like that. Um, but there's a reaction in my heart to the authority of the police officer. Um, and then there's the letter, okay? So the letter goes like this. So there's a young gal fresh out of high school, and she has been anticipating a piece of mail to come in to her post box. And it's not any old letter. Uh, it is a letter from the dean of faculty that will let her know whether she has made it into some prestigious program or not. And so she has been anticipating this letter for weeks and weeks, and it has finally arrived. And uh, so she grabs the piece of mail. She walks back from the post box to her house, to the kitchen table. Her parents are around her, and her heart is anxious. It's, it's nervous. It's trembling. And in that moment, she wants nothing more than to know the contents of that letter because the contents of that letter are going to determine her future, at least for the next several years and even maybe beyond that. As so the police officer and the letter, I think those illustrations are imperfect, but I think they help us a little bit to understand what it looks like to tremble before the Word of God. We understand that the Word of God is weighty. We understand that it is consequential. We understand that it is personal. And we understand that His Word... The book in our hands carries with it all the authority and the presence of God himself. And they come as a package. The word of God cannot be divorced from the God of the word. And this is what was happening in the nation of Israel. The two come as a package. And here's the thing. For us to reject the word of God is to reject the God who has given us his word. And this really is what separates the saints from the ain'ts. Those who have found life-forgiving forgiveness in His Son are also those who find life-giving direction in His Word. So, the friends, so friends, the question for us this morning is not perfectly and not all the time, but as a pattern of life, do you listen to, do you hear, and do you heed His Word? Not as a list of rules that you need to inconveniently obey, but as the very source and the foundation of your life. Is this how you see and view the word of God that he has given to us? And so friends, what is it that comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you think of his greatness, of his kingly authority and self-sufficiency as he has no need of you, but you have desperate need for him? And do you see the beauty of his grace that even though he is almighty God and he has every right to judge us in an instant, but he has chosen to show his grace and his mercy and his favor towards a particular kind of people. A people who are broken in their spirit, a people who are humble before him, and a people who will tremble before his word, all because Jesus suffered in our place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. 
This is a great passage, and I just pray that all of us would take heed. I pray that we would be humble before you, that we would have broken spirits before you, and that we would be a people who give careful, close attention and submission to your word. Help us to do this, Father. We cannot do it on our own, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.